COP26 may be over, but the conversation has only just begun. And for this podcast, I'll be inviting the stakeholders, firms and organisations that innovate, inspire and encourage small sustainable steps to drive a positive legacy on the road to 2030. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by a very special guest, um, someone who, throughout my academic career and my career today, I've grew up reading a lot of his books and admired from afar as well, and had the pleasure to see him speak in, in person before COVID. Uh, so I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Sir Dieter Helm. Um, Dieter, um, I think a lot of our audience are probably going to be aware about who you are, uh, but for those that aren't, um, would you mind giving us a little uh, flavour of your career to date and your current role now and some of your previous roles? Well, thank you very much for inviting me on. Um, I'm a professor of economic policy at the University of Oxford. I've been here uh, most of my uh, career. Uh, it's a wonderful place, but many universities are wonderful places. Um, uh, throughout that career, I've tried to mix uh, a combination of uh, academic work, understanding how the policy and governmental world works, and uh, understanding how a boardrooms function. And I regard myself as living in the intersection between business, uh, policy and government, and academic research. Uh, my interests have uh, always been environmental, uh, but actually, I didn't start off there. I started off as a mainstream economist with a uh, deep interest in energy, and that led to privatization, regulation, and all those infrastructure issues which are so important today. And I suppose most relevant to this discussion, I had the privilege of chairing uh, the Natural Capital Committee from start to finish. Uh, and uh, uh, as I think many people know, we uh, proposed the 25-year plan, environment plan for England and Wales. We were instrumental in the agriculture bill and the public money for public goods. And of course, have done a lot of work on climate change. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Um, uh, and I continue in that intersection between those different worlds. Yeah, and I think um, it's it's probably rare as well, Dieter, that for someone to balance so many different areas of academia, government, business, policy, economics, environment, it, it really is quite an interesting mix. I always kind of kick off the show, Dieter, um, with some reflections on COP26. Now, I know this is something in, in recent weeks and months that you, you've kind of looked back on and reflected, and I think it's probably fair to say you're um, in the pessimist camp. Is that is that probably an accurate statement, not just of COP26, but of previous COPs as well in terms of what they achieved and will likely achieve? Um, any kind of thoughts on that and, and what you think the, the COP26 actually achieved or didn't achieve, rather? So I prefer the word realist. Yes. Uh, pessimistic or optimistic. You know, it's easy to do doom and gloom and it's easy to do techno-optimism and all that kind of stuff. This is all too serious. This is too grown up. This is, um, you know, part of the great challenge of our time and of this century. So my take on the COPs, and we had 26 of them, okay, is that after 26 of them, you should be able to identify something they've achieved, okay? So here we are in 2022, and every single year since 1990, we've added two parts per million carbon to the atmosphere. 
I have to remember, climate change is about the stock of carbon in the atmosphere, the concentration of carbon and the other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's net of emissions and sequestration. And the question for the cops uh, and for all of us is, how do you make a difference to this relentless increase in that concentration in the atmosphere? And remember, last year during the lockdowns, which was the greatest uh, uh, deliberately induced reduction of emissions that's ever happened in a short period of time because of the global lockdowns, we had two parts per million added to the atmosphere as well. Okay, So I think any realist stands back from this and say, well, if this is all you've achieved after 32 years, right, uh, uh, and it's still going up two parts per million, you know, this isn't working. And in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow, while I'm, I'm all in favour of people discussing this stuff, getting publicity, getting momentum, etc., cetera, uh, I found myself in a fairly lonely position of saying, don't expect very much, guys. Okay, And the answer is, we've got even less than I expected to be the outcome. So the first uh, part of this is that the COP is designed around national, uh, nationally determined contributions. Okay, So it's territorial emissions, not global emissions that are being counted. Okay? And that turns out to have really quite big consequences because it's quite easy then to export your emissions and claim you're doing well. But those... Uh, NDCs do not add up to 1.5 degrees. They do not add up to two degrees. And frankly, when you look at the sources of the greatest increase in emissions and actually some of the really damaging stuff done to the sequestration, they're in India, China, and Sub-Saharan Africa, right? They're not here. India isn't going to strive to achieve so-called net zero for half a century, 270. China isn't going to do it for 40 years. That's assuming they actually do it, which I have some doubts about. And China <laughs> isn't going to even peak its emissions till 230. Okay, so that's the point. That isn't good enough. That isn't going to do the job. That commits us, in my personal view, to at least three degrees, because we'll never actually achieve the targets we promised to. You think about climate Funding, so how you take money from the developed countries to help the developing countries uh, 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 decarbonize. Crucial to this frame, okay? 100 billion, sounds a lot of money. But we've been promising that for a very long time. We've only ever managed about 75 billion per annum. And that's equal to the annual dividend of Saudi Aramco, an oil company, right? It just doesn't pass muster. And then when it comes to deforestation, you know, as the Amazon burns at a faster rate uh, this January than it's ever done, there's a commitment in nearly a decade's time to try to stop deforestation of the rainforests. And we've come up with a remarkable 14 billion again, same number as last time and the time before, of which 7 billion is private and 7 million is public. Nobody in their right minds can think, great, we've done it. We're on our way. This is going to this is going to handle climate change. It isn't enough. And one more heave at COP27, COP32, COP38, COP45. It keeps a lot of people busy. It keeps the UN in the game. It keeps the conversation going, going. But it is not a way of going to getting us towards actually addressing climate change. 
I think there was something in there as well, Dieter, that you mentioned that's pretty telling as well about you know China and India as well. And the fact that you know China, Russia, they weren't, I mean, okay, there was a token presence at COP26, but the fact that they weren't really there, did that send out a message to the world saying, well, we don't really care about this, you know, 40 years' time, as you're saying, you've kind of got your doubts. You're probably not the only person that's got your doubts, but that leadership piece, if the world leaders in those countries aren't willing to come at the table, then, you know, in some ways, does it render all cops pointless if they're not going to come at the table? Or is that maybe going a bit too far? Well, I think there's a lot in what you say, because international agreements are never single-issue agreements. They're set in geopolitics, right? We have two effective dictators out there in Russia and China, whose primary objectives are to stay in power, and their secondary objectives are, respectively, to take back more of the former Soviet Union, in the Russian case, and to take back Taiwan in the Chinese case. And neither of them make any bones about this at all. The idea that these two world leaders were going to sit down and do an agreement in the UK with essentially the UK and the US at the head of the table is a pretty unlikely proposition. And indeed, Putin has never been interested in climate change. Why would he? The, the elite of Russia, the oligarchs, etc., Russian economy itself makes all his money out of oil and gas and a few other raw materials too. And when we come to China, China's building more new coal power stations than all the coal power stations being closed in the EU and the US taken together. And the Chinese leader has recently stated that uh, the priority is not to damage the income position of the Chinese population and effectively, yes, climate change, but later, not now. We've got other priorities and burning coal is clearly one of those. So again, you know, the UN functions when basically the Security Council members are in harmony and they usually aren't. And especially when at stake are such huge economic issues. So again, why would you expect it to work, right? Now, it's great because world leaders can portray themselves on a stage. They can look like they're doing so. You know, if you take the speeches from Copenhagen, Durban, Paris, you know, they all start with, this is the last chance saloon, okay? Then one or two of the leaders will tell you how they're going to save the world, right? And then they're going to declare a triumph at the end. And, you know, this time at Glasgow, one of the most interesting things was Obama showed up and he told the young how this, what they should be doing, how they should take this forward. I agree about that. The trouble is, that's not what he did. He presided over the largest expansion of fossil fuels that virtually any president has done since the Second World War. He might get rivaled by Biden as the shell industry resumes at the moment in the US. But, you know, do as I say, not as I did. And that's because the fundamentals of this and the fundamentals of energy are a little bit more complicated and deep than the agreeing NDCs at, um, uh, at Glasgow might be. You know, the world is 80% fossil fuels. Right? Your food is incredibly substantially made up of fossil fuels. The fertilizers, the transport, the diesel of the tractors, all that kind of thing. We are, in a serious sense, soaked in carbon. That's how we got from 2 billion people to 7 billion people. 
You know, our economy is based on fossil fuels. And the reality of what we have to do to get from where we are now to where we need to be quickly is truly huge. And that's why I have some skepticism and a worry that people think, you know, we've done Glasgow, job done, tick the box. Now we can think about other things like invading Ukraine or defending Taiwan or whatever else is on the agenda. Yeah. And I think it's interesting as well, Dave, you mentioned about Obama. And it's, I must say, it's something I kind of thought as well that, you know, it's all very well when you're not, you know, leader of one of the, the world's you know, economic powerhouses, the US. When you kind of step out the line, like you can come across to Glasgow and tell young people what they should and shouldn't do. But when you're actually, you know, got your hand at the stakes at the top table, as Obama did as president, as you say, presiding over that, it does feel a bit hypocritical. And one of the things before I come on to the kind of sustainable economic piece um, that I want to chat a little bit about, um, I want to kind of touch upon something that's pretty topical right now. And it was something I think you did a paper, if my memory serves me right, two or three years ago on the cost of energy um, in, in the UK, I believe. Now, obviously, this is a bit of an emotive topic as well, particularly in the UK, you know, in Scotland as well, you know, with all the stuff around Campbell, BP's profits are going through the roof, Bernard Looney's calling them a cash cash machine and whatnot. Just some reflections on that and how have we got to this point as well? And what does it mean from a social perspective as well? Because, you know, people now are having to essentially choose between food and heat. Um, and frankly, that to me suggests a major failure in energy policy. So um, on your last words, major failure in energy policy. Yeah, it is. It's huge. Right. OK. And, you know, I was asked in 2017 to do the cost of energy review, uh, which I did for the UK government. And I set myself and it was very much an open book. I set myself the task of saying, how could we decarbonize and maintain security of supply at the same time? And of course, do it as efficiently as possible, because where I depart from most of the net zero advocates and so on, is I think it's going to be very expensive to do this. Okay, So I think taking a economy soaked in fossil fuels and transforming it in the space of what, 29 years to net zero, right? It's a huge undertaking, okay? And I just don't buy this stuff about, it's all win-win and you know prices aren't gonna go up and it couldn't cost more than 1% of GDP. And anyway, we can borrow the money and the future people can pay for it. You know, all this stuff, I don't buy that. I put it more seriously, you know, I hear people say, well, we must pay the costs of mitigation because the costs of climate change are going to be higher, right? Now, at a global level, that's absolutely true, right? Mm -hmm. Domestically, we're going to pay both because there's not much we're going to do that's going to change climate change, which, as I say, is going to be determined largely in China, India, sub-Saharan Africa, Brazil, places like that, okay? So the question is, first of all, tell people the truth. You know, tell them. A bit more of this is actually blood, sweat and tears. This is going to cost you. You're living beyond your sustainable means because you're not paying for the pollution you're causing. That's you and me. And we're going to have to pay for it. And it's going to be a big effort. And it's no good having QE and printing loads of money and borrowing it from all directions and then hoping the next generation is going to pick up the cost and the pollution. We have a duty to the next generation to make sure, you know, we uh, uh, sort out the climate mess that we've created. Okay? 
So in the cost of energy review, one particular issue I highlight, which is absolutely germane to the current uh, price crisis that consumers face. I mean, for some people, it's just dire what's happening, okay, mm-hmm. is this issue about intermittency of wind. Okay, so I'm not against wind and renewables and all this stuff. Great, we've got to do all this stuff, right? But if you take an electricity system and you graft onto it up to about 20% of the system as being intermittent wind, blows some of the time, not other times, systems can cope. Okay, but as you start to ramp up towards 30, 40%, 30, 40 gigawatts plus, okay, the system creaks. And you have to have the capacity available to deal with when the wind doesn't blow big time. So what are you going to do to back up the system? To which the answer everyone gives is, oh, well, um, um, let's just get on with the wind. Right. You know, they don't say the truth is for the next decade or so it's gas. Right. There's no battery that anyone's got around anywhere in the world that's going to do two or three weeks in February. Right, for an energy load, you need two electricity systems almost, a, a, a conventional backup system and an intermittent renewable scheme to do the transition that we've got there. It's not quite the case, but you need a huge amount more capacity on the system if you're going to have wind because you've got to have what happens when the wind doesn't blow. That's all pretty straightforward. Okay. The trouble is the wind doesn't pay for that. We're told that wind farms are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And it may be, though, I think it's going to stop now because steel prices are going up, that putting up the the, the turbine, uh, that actually making the bits is going to get a bit cheaper. Okay, what is going to get more expensive as you increase the proportion on the system is the cost of intermittency. Now, being a bit technical, but what the intermittency of wind does is make the gas stations intermittent, too. Right. You don't know when you're going to run them. And that affects your costs a lot. So if you now come along with an increase in gas prices and you haven't thought through the transition to ensure the security supply and capacity is there to handle the problem and you've done the right thing which is to close all the coal as fast as you can and you haven't built built new nuclear at any rate to cover the decommissioning whole issue about whether that's a good idea but you haven't done that you are suddenly extremely exposed to the gas price And that's why in the UK, it's much worse than anywhere else in Europe by a a mile. Right. You know, you think, oh, it's all Putin and gas and everyone in Europe suffering. They are suffering, but not like this. Mm -hmm. And if the government had taken seriously what I said in the cost of energy review, if we thought about. You know, everything from gas storage to strategic reserves, we've taken gas seriously instead of saying, oh, ESG, we're not having gas, you know, close them all down, etc. We might actually have managed this in a way which can take people on board. And, you know, this is the downside. You tell people it's cheap. They find out it's expensive and you undermine the public support for the decarbonisation itself. That is very dangerous. And you see the reactions. You know, we've got a net zero scrutiny group. Brexit part of the Tory party is morphing itself into this territory. And don't think for a moment they're just some isolated politicians and individuals. They're representing real voters out there. We even have the possibility that, uh, uh, you know, Farage comes back and sets up the net zero party. And you can see it elsewhere in Europe on the far right, too. 
This is dangerous. Yeah, it, it, of course, and as well, and it goes back to this populism movement we've seen across Europe and the US as well, Dieter. <clears throat> One of the things there that was quite interesting as well, you mentioned about this kind of as a threat to decarbonisation. I wonder, where do you stand on the fact that, so for example, you know, looking at somewhere quite close to home here in Scotland, right? So Campbell obviously hasn't really went ahead by, you know, we could say, you know, there's still activity going around, but the large scale hasn't really you know, panned out as we thought it would. Now, in some ways, in Scotland, is it going to be worse for us that we don't get domestic oil supply and we import it? Or should we be looking at things like carbon border tax that I think you've spoke about before? I mean, do we need to start thinking more creatively about domestic supply and imports as well? Because it's all very well, as you say, as shutting down oil and gas here. But if we're still importing it, you know, does that not just compound the problem? So, so there is, and it's perfectly understandable, but there is an enormous naivety in Scotland that if you build loads of wind farms and you do loads of offsetting and you let large industrial, uh, large financial houses buy up the land and cover it with trees, etc., that somehow you're going to make a difference to climate change. The truth is that the Scottish economy, like the rest of the UK, like Europe, like the United States, is overwhelmingly dependent on fossil fuels. Okay? And, you know, I would say, you know, before you decide, and I have mixed feelings about this, before you decide that you want to disinvest from, I don't know, Shell or BP, or you want to close down things in the North Sea, do make sure that you stop buying oil-based products and gas-based mm -hmm. products yourself. Okay? So don't buy anything with plastic on it. Right. In fact, keep a carbon diary and see how much carbon is in virtually everything you consume. Right. And that depends on fossil fuels. When you go in the shop, you don't buy anything that's got fertilizer on it. That requires oil, a lot of it, gas. In fact, you're eating largely oil uh, and uh, diesel and, and gas when you eat your food overwhelmingly. So get real. You know, are you prepared to change your life so that you don't need to have this stuff? Or is it that you want to feel virtuous that, you know, we're, we're not doing anything in the North Sea? Of course not. It doesn't matter that the company you divested on has sold on the dirty assets to some private um, uh, equity house that's making a fortune out of the sin stocks that are out there. Doesn't you, Just because you do ESG and, you, and sell shells off its or uh, Shell or BP sell off their oil developments, if that's what you want them to do. You know, what are you doing about the people who buy them? Right. And so I think that we should pervasively address the fact that the real polluters are you and me and that there are many things in Scotland that have been done which are good things and going in the right direction. But Scottish citizens like English citizens are still overwhelmingly consuming the carbon and therefore causing the carbon to be supplied. And it's a complete delusion to think that if the carbon comes uh, from a boat from Qatar, it's different from a carbon that might have come out of the North Sea. So I think, again, you know, the word is let's be realistic. Let's really understand how carbon soaked our economies are. And let's face up to the fact that we individually have to uh, be willing to cut our carbon rather than simply think it's some fault of some company out there. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, a, that's a fair point as well, Dieter. And that kind of leads on nicely to, you know, something that you spoke about just a few weeks ago about what does a future sustainable economy look like? And do we, 
you and I, do we all have to get real and think there's going to be have to, there's going to be things we need to give up here? You know, there's going to be have, there's going to be things we need to totally reimagine our society, our economic way of life, and frankly, there's going to have to be some things that we do give up if we want to truly live in a sustainable economy. Um, and I think you, you kind of touched upon a few weeks ago what that may look like. And I appreciate we're a bit short of our time today, but um, what what kind of things do you see there? I mean, you mentioned I think previously about you know fiber being a key one, and you know coming from you know, kind of tech sector as well. I think, you know, that absolutely does need to ramp up as well. But electricity provision being another and um, water supply. So any other thoughts on that would be would be interesting, Dieter. Okay, so the, the, the first thing to say is that a sustainable economy will be a wonderful place to be, right? And it's full of opportunities and it's full of new things we're going to do. And it is not hair shirts and, you know, uh, you know, living in tents and trying to revert back to some, you know, primitive agricultural society or whatever. I mean, it's none of that stuff. Right. I mean, what's essentially going on in our economy is that we, the polluters, because it's you and me that do the polluting. Right. Everything is for us. Firms don't make do pollution for the fun of doing pollution. It's for us. We're doing the consuming. And that's in our carbon diary. Okay. So for us, we are not paying for the pollution we're causing. And therefore, it is true that we're living beyond our sustainable means. Right. That's a fundamental. So if you just go out and print lots of money and borrow lots of stuff and do QE and stuff. And think you could, if you could boost consumption, somehow we'd all be better off, right? This isn't the way for an environmentalist to go. Okay, but what you're really saying is that the polluting things are too cheap, and the things that don't pollute are artificially discriminated against. Okay, so I mean, give an example. You know, people rattle on about how we mustn't eat meat forever. Right. And we've got to go be vegans or whatever. Well, by the way, if you eat a tomato, you're eating a huge amount of oil, gas, diesel, etc. It's really bad stuff uh, when you really look through the carbon frame. But veganism aside, I'm nothing against people making whatever choice they want. OK, so what we could do is we could say, you know, all these cows um, burping out and farting out this methane. Let's get rid of the cows. Right. And then the farmers and the people who's living bit depends on this. They can just go to the wall. After all, we cleared them off for the sheep. Why can we clear them off for the cows? Right. You know, you, you get this really crude approach. Okay. So what do you think is going to happen? Do you think Scottish people are going to eat less beef? Right. No, they're going to import it from the Amazon that's being cleared in Brazil. Right. Okay, so, you know, you have to make sure that you really sorted out the relative costs of these things. You've sorted out the price of carbon and many of the things that we arguably for our own health, etc., overconsume today would turn out to be things that we probably wouldn't want to consume quite so much going forward. That's one thing. But the second thing to say is that once you, you know, make people, polluters pay for the pollution they cause, you open up all sorts of areas for expansion, for domestic production, for domestic technical change, for domestic businesses, for better use of the land. Okay. So if you look across Scotland, Fraser Darling once described it in, I think, the 1950s in a famous report as a brown, wet desert that it looked like beautiful country, but actually it was uh, seriously degraded you know, from the clearances onwards. Okay. Well, couldn't it be so much better? Right? 
Now, hopefully, it's not going to be so much better by, you know, large financial institutions buying up large chunks of the land, selling off offsets, and and then planting up big plantations of trees. Of course, there is good role for offsets. There's good role for carbon farming, farming done properly. But you know what we don't want. I say I'm English, okay. But what uh, you in Scotland, I suspect, don't want is the old clearances which took the sheep, took the people off, and stuck the sheep on the land to be replaced by the new clearances which take the communities off, cover them in forests, and um, sell on the offsets to. Uh, large corporations who should be reducing their emissions. So there are good ways and bad ways of doing this. Uh, it is true that we'll have to adjust our lifestyle, but we're doing it all the time anyway. And the way to do that is to really incentivize the good things, focus hard down on the bad things, the pollution things, and crucially recognize that doing the transition is going to have some really quite nasty distributional consequences. And so we have to address social justice and the distribution issues otherwise we're where we are today with this energy price crisis the poor can't pay even the middle income people can't pay this stuff and that requires serious balanced policies to make it possible for people in scotland to thrive in this transition rather than just make it a luxury for the rich who can have their large estates etc and the poor can go hang on a massive increase in their electricity bill I think I think there's a really good point there as well, Dieter, as well. And I think during the pandemic, one thing I thought was quite interesting, I don't know if this you know kind of happened across the UK, but even with my own sort of group of friends and stuff, I noticed that people were starting to look more locally in terms of local farmers, um, you know, local you know, meat suppliers and stuff, and trying to move away from the supermarkets that, you know, take beef from, you know, God knows where. Um, I mean, is there an argument to say that actually if you have meat or beef or whatever that is, you know, two miles down the road, as opposed to having avocados that are flown in from Peru, you know, that is actually better in terms of the environmental footprint. And another thing that you touched upon there in Scotland as well, I think is a real opportunity, is around vertical farming as well. And that there, in terms of our supply and in terms of our dietary choice as well, that may be a game changer here. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Okay, so... um we have to be very careful about this, you know, changing behavior during the pandemic, right? Smart, affluent people did make quite a lot of changes mm. and they were able to do so. But if you're poor, you can't go and buy an organic chicken for 18 quid, right? When there's one in the supermarket at £4.50 or even less, right? So to be very careful about this, okay, as to, you know, just the idea that, you know, I mean, I, I have it in my university, you know, I and my colleagues uh, in my Oxford College, I think sometimes we're guilty of thinking the world is like us sitting around the table, right? Yeah. It's not. That's not the reality of most people, okay? So the way that you address this question, particularly on food, is you have a carbon border price, So we stop discriminating against domestic producers in favor of producers in countries that don't have carbon prices and carbon uh, restrictions, often for very good reasons. You know, people buy loads of red roses from Kenya for Valentine's Day. Has anyone ever thought of the carbon footprint involved in that? Right. So when it comes to beef and, uh, and cattle and so on, you know, you know, the geography of of uh, of Scotland is what it is. The East Coast is 
potatoes and barley and arable and oats and the west and the center is very much dairy um and open range beef grass etc so you know and, and by the way i don't want to highlight benefits from climate change but it is true that the growing season will be longer and it is true that the frost will be less bad and that does actually mean that it might be cheaper to produce some things in scotland than it currently is as we go through this period to two degrees or three degrees um after all you know the vikings got to iceland greenland and then the united states because in the viking era it was two degrees warmer now i'm not advocating that i'm not encouraging that but you know there will be some people who benefit in the south it's wine growers from the changes that are going to take place and you know scotland can produce a lot of food so it should yeah yeah, well, it might even get a bit warmer as well. But anyway, um, on the we talked a lot about people as well there, and I think you're absolutely spot on as well. You know, if you you are more and more people getting pushed towards not just the breadline below the breadline in terms of choices they're having to make between heat and types of food and whatnot as well. I suppose that leads on nicely to moving. We're in this sustainable economy, right? You know, we've, we've got there, whatever. How do we actually? I mean, I mean, talking about jobs and skill sets and stuff. What kind of journey do we need to go on now to prepare the likes of myself, you, our future generation, our kids, grandkids, and what have you, for what that economy looks like? I mean, <clears throat> clearly there are going to be new roles. Clearly there are going to be some jobs that are relatively similar. Um, but do we need to embark on that journey now as opposed to waiting and saying, well, wait and see what it looks like? Do we need to start to be a bit more creative and actually imagining what the economy looks like? I think when it comes to kind of skills and preparing, and I like to think of it as the citizens of a country for a more sustainable world, I think that there are two points here. One is that there is a cornucopia of new opportunities out there for citizens. And secondly, I think it's a mistake to keep going on about green skills and green jobs. These are just skills and jobs. The economy becomes greener. Uh, and even though I have no faith in the idea we're going to do it in 29 years uh, properly, um, we're going in that direction, which is great. So if you think what's in front of people before you get anywhere near zero carbon and so on, okay? And I'm thinking about, you know, my students today, um, Kids I see in the pub and so on, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to think that younger people are, you know, anyway. Um, and I think what's in front of them, okay? So their world, first of all, it's AI, it's machine learning, it's big data, it's quantum computing. You know, it's just huge what's coming as we digitalize everything and then have the ability through quantum computing not to be limited to two digits, one or naught. Okay. I mean, I started out, and I often make this point to people, and um, uh, as the years go by, they think I'm more of a fossil than they thought the day before. But, you know, I started off with Olympus portable typewriter with Tipex and carbon paper. In my lifetime, things have been utterly transformed by the communications revolution, which in my view is only just starting. Okay, We're never going to make a sustainable economy work unless we harness all of this stuff you know, right down to the smart meter, which will help manage the intermittency of the wind, etc. Okay, so that's the first one. 
The second um, revolution out there in technologies is genetics. Okay, now you can have all sorts of worries about GMOs and all those sorts of things, and quite a lot of those things I share, particularly incentives of the uh, pharmaceutical and drugs companies and uh, pesticide companies to engineer things that they can do more uh, chemicals to, etc. But in principle, think what's happened in the last 20 years. Okay, like like well, a bit further back to my typewriter and Tipex, you know. Someone can send the genetic code of a virus from Wuhan, whether it escaped or not from the lab, and within seven days, somebody in Oxford with their team can develop a vaccine. Okay, I had to go through testing, et cetera, et cetera. That's inconceivable 10 years ago, right? In five years, 10 years, 15 years' time, every citizen shouldn't be able to have their own genetic genome. Think of the medical advance to go with this. So all of this stuff is coming. All this tech is coming. New materials, graphene. Who knows what's going to work in this space? Um, even way out in the future, but, you know, it's in the news, fusion power, right? So all this stuff's out there. Now, we need people with the skills to operate in a world of very fast technical change. Now, I have the old-fashioned view that what you need to get people to have, particularly the young, is generic skills, right? Broad skills, maths, physics, chemistry, biology, even a little bit of economics, though I wouldn't waste too much time of theirs on that. <laughs> and and then they want to apply these in particular circumstances. And certainly in my own university, the young in the engineering and science labs are utterly fired up by finding new ways of getting energy without the carbon emissions. And it used to be it was all in the concern of economists. Now you get the science labs to talk about climate change policy. That's great. That's new. That's exciting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, hopefully there is still a role for the likes of you and I, dear. But um, I mean, I think um, on that point, I mean, you've been fortunate. You spoke to um, Scotland, as you spoke to quite a lot of the tech community in, in Scotland, actually, about this. But I think one of the challenges that we that we have is we're talking about you know skills for the future economy but, but actually even right now there's still major digital skills gaps in the UK as a whole right now so you know even the, I think there's a longer term job that we possibly need to go on but also in the short term do you think there's still a role for in-work training as well and reskilling and upskilling as well so that people like yourself and, and I, you know, we can continue to kind of advance with the rest of the economy as well, because otherwise we have this risk of people being left behind as well. So um, do you think there's got to be a skill strategy that, yes, addresses kind of future jobs and future skills, but also has that interventionist aspect as well? So if you think about a sustainable economy, okay, a sustainable economy is one in which each generation inherits from the previous generation a set of assets at least as good as they had so they can choose how to live their lives. And that includes the natural environment, includes the physical environment, but absolutely core, what we pass on from one generation to the next is ideas, knowledge, and skills. Because perhaps, unfortunately, although I don't really like the idea of people living to infinity, we're going to die, right? And with that goes all the knowledge and experience that people have built up in their lifetime. 
we have a permanent process of passing the baton of knowledge, skills, and ideas between generations. And that's what drives productivity. And that's what drives future economic growth. And the sustainable economy will grow by virtue of new ideas and new technology. And therefore, it's absolutely core to a sustainable society and that economy that we permanently and continuously invest in skills, knowledge, ideas, research and development. And we don't borrow to do that. We don't pile up a load of debt. And, and you know, I, personally, I don't think you should even charge um, students university fees. I think it's a capital maintenance problem. I didn't pay university ski fees. I didn't pay maintenance when I went to university. The previous generation paid for me and my cohort because that's part of the intergenerational justice that, and the duty to pass the baton on. Now, of course, they'll be borrowing for R&D and so on. But we've lost sight of this priority to what education is in the broadest possible sense. And we've lost sight that every company has to train apprentices. Every company has to worry about the young and how they're taken through and become you know, really valuable parts of the workforce and then have their duty to pass this stuff on. So I, if, if anyone asks me, you know, what's a, an economic recovery, growth strategy, et cetera, I don't come up with, well, you must build these wind farms and you must do these green investments. They're important. I want to enable those to happen and therefore skills, R&D, education, apprentice, well, whatever you want to call it, apprentices, in-job training, this is the absolute essence of a duty of a society to provide. And therefore, it always must be the duty of government to help deliver that because it's a public duty and not purely a private one. Sorry, I feel very strongly about this. No, but no. I've seen in my lifetime what we've done to education. I've seen mainly in higher education and it doesn't make me happy. No, and I think as well, Dieter, as well, what you highlighted there as well, a skill strategy, there has to be various aspects to it as well. You know, for example, I went through a relatively traditional higher education route, undergraduate, you know, masters, you know, and so on. And I do actually feel I, I learned greatly from that process, in fairness. I think it worked for me. And um, that being said, I don't think it necessarily works for, for everybody. And um, so I think, as you say, the in-work training, apprentices and stuff, we need to have a range of options available to people. So I think you're absolutely spot on there. One of the, the things that we always sort of finish the show on, albeit I think you've actually answered the question, is about um, our journey to 2045 and 2050 in terms of will we make it, will we not? And, you know, I think you've, you've answered that uh, accurately earlier on. But I suppose, you know, sometimes we talk about 2045 and 2050 and they, they sound a bit abstract. What do we need to be doing in the next year, the next two years? You know, what, what do you think is the kind of priorities really Forget about, you know, the 2030s and 2045s. What do we actually need to be doing tomorrow and onwards? So to start uh, uh, with the segue backwards to what you uh, what we previously were discussing, um, you know, every citizen has something to contribute, right? And they're different. We're all different. We're all unique. But therefore, we're all uniquely able to contribute to, to what is a decent society and sustainable society. So that has to be, you know, a priority. But, you know, when you look at these, you know, 
political competitions. And I understand why they're that to say, you're going to do it by 2045 or 250 or 235. Why don't you bring it back to, you know, 219 and let's go backwards. I mean, you're going to have this. okay? But what you actually need to get from here to there is an integrated, comprehensive, long term plan. You can't build an energy infrastructure next year. Right. But it's no good just patching it up, filling the potholes in the road, as I described. You have to think what system you want. okay? And that requires a degree of consensus, which is very hard in modern politics. But there are certain things which have to be done in Scotland and ought to be done in Scotland and can be done at Scotland in Scotland and will be done at the lowest cost possible if there's a coherent framework to do it through the medium to longer term. And so what one has to do is go to 250 in your mind and think back and work backwards and say, or 245, work backwards and say, what are the core stakes in the ground we need? What state of infrastructure is required? What are the main things we have to do? What are the incentives we have to put in place? And when you do that, you might find a politician that stands up and says, we have to do this. This is what we should do. This is the plan to include the citizens and the frame to take us all on this journey. These are the opportunities. But frankly, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be cheap. That would be a breakthrough. But instead, we tell them, it's not going to cost anything. It's Nirvana. You're not going to have to change your ways at all. It's all pretty straightforward. And I come full circle. 80% of the world's energy is fossil fuels. Most of the rest, by the way, is hydro and a bit of nuclear. Wind and, and solar, a tiny bit on the top at the moment. You know, This is a massive transition. And honesty, a degree of social and political cohesion is pretty clear. And you need a plan. Dear. I love that as well. Honesty, social cohesion in politics. We can all we can all dream, and I think that's a nice note to, to finish the, the podcast on. But Dieter, as always, it's been a real pleasure to have you. Um, always insightful as ever, and hopefully we can do this in person at some point as well. So thank you very much for joining the show, and uh, stay safe in the meantime. Well, thank you. From the dreaming spires, um, we can at least try to imagine how we could crack these problems. Climate Conversations is a Herald podcast sponsored by Epson. To find out more about their environmental vision, visit epson.co.uk slash about slash environment and take 20% off an annual subscription to the Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Enter HeraldPod2021 at your checkout and access our award-winning journalism from your mobile, tablet and PC.